here we go. Starting the book of Exodus, pretty exciting. It's one of the most well-known stories uh, or series of events, really, in the Bible. Um, and not only is it well-known for this story, but maybe more significantly for us, later on when the Bible goes on to describe the Christian life and what happens when someone surrenders their life to Jesus, surrenders their will to God, uh, decides to follow Jesus, and, and, and kind of that process of stepping into that and then how God interacts with people and works for their good. When all of that stuff is mentioned later on in your Bible, we're talking New Testament now, the picture of what those things look like in a life is always pointed back to the events of the book of Exodus. It's always pointed back to these things. You were in slavery. God led you out. You came across the river. You were in the wilderness. Like there's over and over and over again when you're trying to live out the Christian life, the Bible points you back to the events of the book of Exodus. So I mean, it doesn't matter what you're talking about. When you're talking about slavery to sin, being redeemed by God, deliverance, being set free, salvation by blood, all that stuff has its foundation in the book of Exodus. Not to mention maybe the most impactful, argued over, famous passage of the scripture in the history of the world, the Ten Commandments, that's in the book of Exodus. Okay, so we're going to hit all of it. Um, and yes, these are going to be historical events that happened 3,500 years ago, but they are events that were orchestrated by God on purpose. He did these things in this way on purpose in order to communicate something about the Christian life to us. Okay, so in order to communicate something about the people of God and what it looks like to be the people of God, that's why he did these things the way that he did them. So the way you're going to read about all this unfolding is not an accident. Okay, when we read this, it's not God like, oh, yeah, I just had to do this crazy thing. He's like, no, I did it this way on purpose so you would understand. The story goes the way it goes because God wanted to communicate some truth to you, not only in 2022, but for everybody who's read the scriptures. So some of you may be wondering, as we start to jump into this, we did Exodus, uh, or I'm sorry, we did Genesis um, a couple years back. And so this is the next book in the Old Testament. If you open your Bible, it starts with Genesis, then goes to Exodus. And, and you might be wondering, why doesn't the Bible tell us more of the things we want to know about history, right? Especially when people are reading for the first time, they're like, oh yeah, we're getting into Genesis. This is kind of cool. God made stuff. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff that seems like it would be valuable information to us, but God just left it out. Why did God leave it out? Like, what came first, the chicken or the egg? God, we need to know these things. Like, who built the pyramids? What happened to the dinosaurs? Like, where did the angels come from? Like, all this stuff that we're kind of like, hey, what about this information? If this is a history book, like, why don't you give us more of the history? But the Bible was not written to be a historical archive, okay? So the Bible was written to tell one story. This might be news to some of you. There's a lot of stories in your Bible. No, there's one story. It's the story of how God rescued man. And when I say man, I, this is not like mankind, okay? Right? So God rescuing mankind is the story of the Bible. That is the story the Bible was written to tell. So some of the details of history help us understand that story. Other details of history do not. And so where the Bible doesn't need to go into what happened to the dinosaurs, like it doesn't because it doesn't have anything to do with God rescuing mankind, okay? The Bible is concerned only with the history of the world insofar as it impacts his re rescuing of humans. So you'll notice as we start that we're kind of jumping into the middle of a story here, 
Okay, and Genesis, the first book in the Bible, covered a lot of that background information. This is the setup where a lot of the questions that you're probably going to have are answered. Where did mankind come from? And why does mankind need rescuing? And how is God planning on doing this rescuing? And quite a few other questions. Okay, so if you're like, feel like you're jumping into the middle of something, you kind of are. So you could read Genesis in preparation for this if you wanted to. But the big pieces of the story that I'll just kind of give you right now to catch you up to speed are that God created the world at the beginning of the book of Genesis. Mankind chose to do their own thing instead of listening to God. And the perfect world that God created then became infected. That's the word I'll use because it's kind of this like permeating, corrupting, like infection. Like we all get it, right? We know viruses and how they infect. We understand, right? That kind of infection spread into every single thing that God had created. Nothing that God created in his perfection then was, ab like, was exempt from being infected by sin. It was all broken. Nothing worked like it was intended to work anymore. Any baby mamas out there, they're like, yeah, it shouldn't be that painful. You're right. It shouldn't be, but it's broken by sin. So at that point, God came down and he said, you guys need to follow rules better or you're never going to get to heaven. No, that's not what he said, right? Some of you are like, I've been to that church. Okay, no, he said, I'm going to send a savior, okay? That's what, it, very first part of your Bible, Genesis chapter three, God promises the seed of the woman is coming. The rescuer is coming. Remember, the story the Bible was written to tell is how God rescues mankind right at the beginning. God promises, I'm sending this rescuer. Now, God zooms in a little bit on a man named Abram and then changes his name to Abraham. So I'm going to use the name Abraham from the same guy for the rest of the study. But God zooms in on Abraham and his family because that rescuer is going to come from Abraham's family. So Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has two sons named Esau and Jacob. Jacob is the one that walks with God, and Jacob's name is then changed to Israel. And you're like, yeah, I get it. It's a little bit confusing, but that's where we're going to start. We're going to start with Jacob's family. His name is changed to Israel. Sometimes the Bible calls him Jacob. Sometimes the Bible calls him Israel. There's a pretty good reason on why that is. I'm not going to go into it right now, but here we go. You're going to notice a couple things as we follow this story you're going to notice a change in communication, first of all. Where God goes from acting on behalf of individuals and speaking to individuals in Genesis to now speaking to and acting on behalf of a people, a group of individuals in the book of Exodus. We're going to go from God dealing with one person at a time to now God dealing with a group of people as a whole. And that's quite a bit different than we've been seeing so far in your Bible if you just read the book of Genesis. And it's significant, it's significant because this is what the Bible says God intended to produce when he rescued the world. Okay? This is what God wanted. A group of individuals with a shared identity and belonging to the community of those who are being rescued by God in the world. And what's going to happen is we're going to see how the people of God become the people of God. Not just one-on-one -on -one anymore, but this group of people where God says, these are my people. So we're going to end this book with a people a people who are God's people, who are in the world, but separate and distinct from the world and are meant to communicate something about God to the world. And this is going to be an incredible picture for us 
of how Jesus proclaimed his followers to be a people of God in the world, yet separate and distinct from the world with a desire to be a light and communicate something about the nature of God to the world. Okay, so I'm going to tell you what it's going to look like before we actually read the book. I don't want to spend too much time. I usually hate doing this, but I think all this is helpful information. Exodus is 40 chapters. There's a clear breaking point right in the middle. The first 19 chapters have to do with God bringing the people out of slavery in Egypt. Then from chapter 20 to chapter 40, we have what it's supposed to look like now that they are not slaves in Egypt anymore. And I love that with all my heart. If you're a note taker, please write that down. Okay? Because think about it this way. If I were like a movie producer in Hollywood and I was like, I got this incredible story. Like, you, you got to, like, how, how would we organize this story as a movie? We would, we would build, 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 and then the climax event would be at the end, right? And so we would be like, oh, the people were in slavery, and it was really hard, and they were killing babies. And then Moses shows up, and he's like, let my people go, and he murders a guy. And then they tried to murder Moses, so Moses ran away. But then Moses came back, and it was like, Pharaoh was like, oh, no. And then the ten plagues came, and then, like, it was crazy. And then God split the Red Sea and killed the Egyptians. The end! And we'd all be like, yeah! And then there'd be like, some 90 second like oh yeah and then we all lived happily ever after right and it showed the Israelites like in a field with like babies right and it'd be like it was okay right and oh I probably forgot the part about like the huge climactic event like all the Avengers came back and they killed him like you know like that's how movies are written right everything gets back and the T-Rex from Jurassic Park helped too and like right like it all builds to this salvation event and then ends and that's not how the book of Exodus is written. The huge victory battle scene is not at the end. It's in the middle. It's in the middle. There's 19 chapters of one thing, and there's 20 chapters of another thing. So the book of Exodus is equal parts saved from and saved for. Again, if you're a note taker, write that down. It means the book was written so that there is a much, as much attention given to what happens after God sets his people free as there is what happened before God set his people free. That's a big deal, okay? God didn't just save his people from something terrible. He also saved them for something amazing, and that's what I mean when I say saved from, saved for. It's not just like, oh, man, that's really bad. We got to get you out of that. No, it's, oh, man, that was really bad. We got to get you out of that so we can get you into this incredible thing that I have for your life. Okay? It's not just saved from. It's also saved for. And so this is where most of us live, right? We need to be reminded not only what God is saving us from, but why God is saving us for. Right? It's really powerful because we need to remember that God's not just telling us not to do stuff. God's not like, hey, that was really bad. We got to get that out of your life. He's like, hey, let's get that out of your life because I have something amazing for you to step into. And I don't know if you noticed this, but the stop doing bad things messages from church doesn't work. Right? Who's got teenagers? I got one as of two months ago, and he's actually a great kid. But in the few times I've had to tell him, like, don't do bad things, it never works. 
right? Which makes sense because he's my child and my mom told me forever, don't do bad things and didn't work at all. People don't do very well when their whole goal is not to do something. People respond really well when they are in pursuit of something. Okay, so at the end of the day, we are not primarily a people who don't do bad things. We are a people who are pursuing God. And if you feel a pressure to stop doing bad things, it's primarily because that thing you are doing corrupts your ability to pursue God, the God who sets you free. If you refuse to get free from, then you will disqualify yourself from what you're free for. Okay, and so we're going to teach in this church. I don't mean to like prop ourselves up, but like the Bible teaches pursuit of God more than it teaches abstinence from bad things. And we're going to see that in Exodus chapter one. Here we go. Exodus chapter one, verse one. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers in that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. So, again, history lesson a little bit. God chose Abraham because Abraham was the guy who, whose family was going to bring forth that rescuer. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. He had 12 sons. Their names are listed here. One of those sons, the book of Genesis tells us, ended up as second in command of all of Egypt so that the, when the land went into a famine, the Pharaoh at the time was like, Joseph, why don't you bring your family down here? They can live and have a good time. And so that's what happened. All 70 people, and the 12 sons had babies and wives, so that's why there ended up being 70 of them. All 70 people came down to Egypt, and the Egyptians at the time, like, stuck up their nose at shepherds and agricultural workers and stuff like that. So there's this Nile River Delta, which is beautiful and lush and well-watered and produces crops and all that stuff, and the Egyptians are like, People who raise cows live there. You can have it. And so they were like super land snobs. And the Egyptians just let them have this area in the north of Egypt called the land of Goshen. So that's where we start. We start with the 70 people. And then we get to verse 7. And it says this. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. So during this time period, the family of 70 explodes into a whole ton of people. A whole ton, okay? A lot. And this happens because we're dealing with exponential growth here, okay? When babies have babies, have babies, have babies, it's kind of like that financial, if you're a financial person, that compound interest thing that everybody gets excited about, like if you double the penny and you're like, I could have a million dollars next year. Yeah, slow down, buddy, right? I remember <laughs> when you learn that in third grade, you're like, compound interest is magic. Well, that's what's happening with people here, okay? The average, when we go from Abraham to Jacob to 12 sons, like that's averaging like 200% growth per generation. So that's like every 20 years, the population is doubling about. And that's not actually that crazy. It would be like if every man and woman who were married had four kids, right? So that's not like, I mean, some of you are like four kids, but like that's not crazy out of this world expectations. And so that's what was happening. And when you do that for 400 years, you get a lot of people. So the estimates, we go from 70 to 
hundreds of thousands, probably millions of people at this point in time when we get to the end of verse 7. So for the rest of the book, I'm going to say a million people because I went to public school and I can't use any other thing but round numbers. But when I say that, that's where I got that idea, okay? It's like there's this exponential growth. It's probably close to a million people. So pay attention because this is where the book of Exodus starts. It starts with Jacob, then his 12 sons, then the whole group of them was 70. Then we end verse 7 with like a million people. And we go from one person to 12 people to 70 people to a million people. To think that you, here's where, I want, here's where I want to point that out, why it took so much time for that. There's two ways you can get that really wrong. You can see the people of God and not recognize the individuals or you can recognize the individuals and not realize that the individuals become a people, okay? And, and why does that get really wrong? Well, first, if you recognize the individuals, but you never recognize the people of God, you'll never be connected to the community of the people of God that God wants you to be connected to. And people will do that. They'll be like, I have my own relationship with God. We're, and to think that you can just communicate with God and not be a part of the thing he is doing in the world or the identity of the people who are also responding to his goodness and salvation is just not in the Bible. I've heard it said before, there's no Lone Ranger Christians. But God intended to produce a people on this earth. And so to think that you could just remain an individual and keep the people of God at arm's length is just not what God intended. And so you're like, wow, this is really funky. It, yeah, because you're not doing the thing that God wanted to do when he saved his people. Now, the other side of that is when God talks about a people, he's talking about a group of individual persons. Okay, and this is funny too, because you need to remember Groups of people cannot do anything. Individual people can do things, right? A group doesn't change. Individuals within the group change. And it's important to revisit this because sometimes we talk about big groups of people and we lose the individual responsibility of it. And it's almost like at the beginning, God is writing this story of how the people of God become the people of God. And he reminds us that the people of God is made up of individuals, and that's important because when we talk about who we are and what we do, don't forget that we can never be anything or do anything if you aren't those things yourself. To be honest, I think we lose this sometimes when we come to church because I think we have expectations for the people as a group that we don't have for ourselves. I'll give you a funny example. I talk with lots of people about church just because I lead one and that's kind of what I do. Everybody wants to go to a friendly church. Not nearly as many people want to be friendly. Isn't that weird? I want to go to a friendly church so I can sit in the back and not talk to anybody. Right? Like, if you're sitting in the back, I'm not trying to, like, you're like, it was the only seat open. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I don't care where you're sitting today. It's not intended. But it just happens. I see it all the time, right? And people come to me, I left your church because it wasn't very friendly. It's like, okay, well, like, and in the back of your mind, you're like, why would we want a friendly church, but then when we get there, we expect to be okay with being unfriendly? And that's kind of a funny example, right? And like, there's a whole bunch of people who think churches should be friendly. Not nearly as many people want to be friendly when they go to a church, which is an odd disconnect. 
it's funny when you're talking about that because they're like, oh, yeah, funny. But it gets a lot more serious than that. When we talk about big church ideas like worship and repentance and confession and mission and prayer, we think those things are things the church should be doing, but we don't make the connection that those are things I should be doing. We think the church should be a generous, selfless, praying, repenting people, and somehow church people are historically fine with not being any of those things, which is a weird disconnect. I'll give you another example. This is a good one. Lots of people want to see revival, forgetting that if a revival is going to happen, individuals need to be revived. Okay? So people who talk about a revival are usually talking about a group thing. Right? I want a group thing. I want a revival. I want a lot of people involved. And they forget every revival in history probably started with one person experiencing a heart change. So even though we're going to be talking about the people of God a lot through the course of this book, don't lose sight of the individuals who make up the people of God. So verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Okay, remember, Joseph was second in command in Egypt 400 years ago now. So the new king, and it actually is like a new, if you do the historical thing, there's actually a new dynasty starting. They actually moved the capital and all sorts of stuff. So anyway, long story short, the new pharaoh, which is what the Egyptians call their king, doesn't know Joseph, doesn't care about Joseph's people, doesn't care about the contributions he made to Egypt in the past. Verse 9, and he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many for us and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Okay, so at this point, we have this giant group of people living in this land of comfort and prosperity. The, the Hebrews, the Israelites, are thriving because they're agricultural. The Nile River Delta is the absolute perfect place for them to live and to thrive. New leadership comes in, different authority. Previous leadership had a good history with these people. New leadership does not. The new leadership has no connection with these people. And what happens is these people are now no longer enjoying the peace and prosperity of what they knew previously. And it was of no fault of their own. Please see that. They didn't do anything to make themselves slaves. That's where we start, okay? So this new Egyptian leader looks around and evaluates the situation, and he thinks to himself, this is getting out of hand. There's a million people that live up there, right? And the world population wasn't that big at the time, right? So a million people is a big chunk of people. And, and so if they were to fight against Egypt because maybe some enemy came down from the north and the Israelites are like, yeah, why don't we join in this and be free? Uh, that would be bad. So he says in verse 10, they began to deal shrewdly with them. Now, shrewd is the word you use when you want to describe wisdom mixed with selfishness, right? So it's like, I'm going to do something smart that helps only me, right? That's what shrewdness is, okay? And this is the idea that we're going to do wise things. We're going to do things that are smart, but only that benefit us. How can we benefit ourselves. And once you start down that road, once you start down the road of only thinking, how can this benefit me? Somebody say amen, because that train gets out of control real fast, right? When you start that, I can do this for me, like we get out of control real fast. And look at what happens in verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, 
Pithom, and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So the shrewdness turns into, verse 11, affliction. And you can actually follow the the emotional downward spiral in the passage if you want. What it starts out as fear turns into shrewdness, which is self-magnification, right? Selfishness. And before you know it, you're afflicting the people with heavy burdens. And it's this great reminder of why God calls his people to keep him at the center of life. Because when you take out God out of the center of life and you put yourself at the center, you end up doing really terrible things to people in order to keep yourself at the center. People will fight and scratch and claw to keep themselves at the center of the life. And, and, and we're never intended to be the center, right? Does the world need any more people who think the world revolves around them? No, right? There's a lot of pain and hurt and heartache in this world has come from people putting themselves at the center instead of God. And what you're going to see is the purpose of God accomplished despite the best efforts of the Egyptians to resist and keep themselves at the center. See, the Egyptians are hoping to control the Israelites, and the plans they've devised here and the things they are devoting themselves to are not working. The shrewdness and the affliction are not accomplishing what they thought it would accomplish. The self at the center of their lives is not doing the things they were hoping it would do. And the Israelite people are not weakening. They're strengthening despite their afflictions. So what do the Egyptians conclude must be done? This plan is not working. Do we give up on this plan? That's not what they do. They double down on the plan. Look at verse 13. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and with all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So here's another progression. You go from shrewd to affliction to ruthless. The, the Egyptians see what we're seeing, that the plan they have isn't working, but they don't back off the plan. They double down on that plan. They apparently think the thing wrong with our plan is we haven't been harsh enough, right? Things need to get worse for these people for our plan to work. And the Egyptians increase the severity of their treatment of the Israelites. Now that's from the Egyptian side. From the Israelite side, you're just living your life, minding your own business, living in prosperity and comfort. Things are going well for you. Your nation's growing. You guys are having babies. You're supporting the, the people, the Israel people. And before you know it, you're in slavery, not because you did anything wrong, but because the nation you're living in sees you as a threat to their self-at-the-center way of life. And the Israelites are probably completely bewildered because they did nothing to deserve this. And what happened to this prosperous life we were living, God? Like, what, what happened to this comfort we were enjoying, God? Like, we were doing fine. I thought we were your chosen people, God. I thought you spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I thought you led us into this place. This doesn't make any sense, God. Why are your people going? Why is this getting worse for us? What did we do to deserve this? You know, Egypt is a great place to be when God wants you to be Egypt in Egypt. Egypt is a really lousy place to be when God wants you to live in Canaan. Right? Canaan is the promised land that God said, my people are going to end up there. This is the land I'm going to give you. 
right? And so at some point in the journey, God was calling his people to Egypt. Now God is calling his people to Canaan, and he is allowing these circumstances to rise up to get them out of Egypt. Because truth be told, the Israelites are pretty happy in Egypt. They never would have left if it didn't get more uncomfortable. But that's not where God called them to be. This is about the people of God being where God wants them to be and doing what God wants them to do. And I think sometimes we overlook the simple question a lot of the time, is this what God wants me to be doing right now? Right? Sometimes we're like, yeah, this is, this is working. And God's like, I didn't call you to do that. I didn't call you to be there. Right? And this is going to get really hard for them because God doesn't want them to be there any longer. Yeah, once upon a time, he called them into this. Now he's calling them into something different. In verse 15, it says, The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, it's, they're doubling down on the severity of their plan again, one of whom was named Shipporah and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to the Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. Passive-aggressive slap in the face, right? For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. It's like, I don't know about the girls you hang out with, but in the neighborhood we're from, man, they don't mess around, right? That's what they're saying. So the Egyptians are on this path of brutality towards the Israelites that is clearly not working, and they just keep upping the efforts to control this situation. It would almost be funny if it wasn't so sad. You ever watch somebody trying thing after thing after thing to control their lives and going deeper and deeper into the pit of helplessness because there's no amount of effort or intensity or severity that will succeed when your plan of life opposes what God wants to do? Some of you have experienced that or watched someone go through that, and they just keep going this way, and you're like, I know what's wrong. You're going the wrong direction. Like, no, I just need to run faster that way. Right? There's story after story in the Bible of people doing this. There's story after story probably in your life of you watching people do this. And they think that they need to double down and give more effort and focus in and just try harder to do this self-at-the-center way of life. That's the problem. The problem is not that you're not trying hard enough, Egypt. The problem is not that you're not severe enough, Egypt. The problem is not that you're not harsh enough, Egypt. The problem is that you're trying to do your plan instead of trying to do God's plan. Now, this is what's crazy as we're going to wrap it up here. There's two groups of people taking action so far in this chapter. There's the Egyptian rulers who are trying thing after thing after thing after thing after thing to suppress the Hebrew people. None of it's working. These are wealthy, successful, privileged people living in absolute terror. And you could tell they're living in terror, not only because the Bible tells us that they're in terror, but because their plans are obviously not working. And there's a lot of activity that they are suggesting that they are really fearful. Right? I used to run track... Um, I just thought about how long ago it was, and that made me sad because I'm old. But anyway, uh, we were at an invitational at WSU one time, and it was like a Pac-12 invite, so there's a bunch of people. Not 
it's not like there's a bunch of people ever at a track meet. It's not like a popular sport, but there was like more people than usual at a track meet. And nobody ever watches the pole vault, but they usually put the pole vault in people's way to watch the other thing they're watching. So this happens where like the pole vault's like in the middle and people are like, I can't see the 100 meter dash. Like, but we ended up in the center of this thing and I went and I did a jump and they made me safety pin my number on my back. And the safety pin came undone, and I fell from like 16 feet onto a safety pin, and it stabbed me in the back, right? And everybody's watching this, not having any idea what's going on, other than they're like watching me like, right? Just like freaking out. And nobody could tell, like, they're like, he landed on a pad, maybe he's an Egyptian, like he can't handle it, right? Like, what soft dude, I don't know what's happening here. And like, they just can't figure out, but they can tell by my freaking out and mo motion that something is wrong. And so my mom was like, did you get stung by a bee, honey? I was like, no, it was a safety pin. I'm okay now. But at the moment, like, I was not okay. And that's what you can tell when you look at the Egyptians. They're not okay. They're not just like, hey, we're fine. They're like, more, beat them, push them, make them work harder, kill their babies. Like, they're just not okay. And yet, they're wealthy, privileged, comfortable. They have slaves, for crying out loud. Like, how are you guys not okay? And yet, on the other side, we have this other group of people. It's the Hebrew women. And they're not freaking out. They're not fearful. The Egyptian pharaoh brings them in, says, hey, kill the babies when you see them. And they're like, no. And they go off and do it. Like, it's the exact opposite, which is funny because if somebody had something to be fearful of, you would think it was this lit. Like, they are not only women, they're slave women in custody of probably the most powerful nation on the planet Earth at this time. And their actions tell us that they're not afraid at all. Right? So the rich, powerful, like good life people are freaking out in fear. And the people who have nothing are not afraid at all because they're doing the thing that God has called them to do. The Hebrew women and their actions tell us they're not afraid. They're women of integrity doing what they know is the right thing to do, even when the consequences could be severe. And on the other side of the fence, you look at the Egyptians, and what could he possibly have to be fearful of? Man, you're living the good life, man. You're in charge of the most powerful nation on the earth. Like You got a million slaves at your beck and call, right? You're living in a palace. You guys have the pyramids and the Sphinx and the Nile River, man. What are you scared of? And yet... He's probably not sleeping too well at night from the account of things. He's the leader of one of the most powerful nations in the world. And it doesn't sound like he's doing very well at all. So look at verse 20 as we finish the chapter. So God dealt well with the midwives, and, with the, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall not let every but you shall let every daughter live. And that's where we end this chapter. The self at the center Egyptian leaders looking very successful, but actually living in fear so much so that the Pharaoh basically commands his entire nation to commit murder. How, look how sick and sad this gets, right? Verse 22, the Pharaoh commanded all his people 
So he's not just telling the midwives any longer. He's saying, hey, if you see an Egyptian baby boy, I want you to kill it. Like, I know we got some political, like, division in our country right now, but that's not happening, right? Nobody was running with, like, I'm going to kill babies platform, right? So, like, we're doing okay, right? We don't all agree, but we're all right. Like, it hasn't gotten this bad. This is crazy. This is how fearful this man is. This is how unsettled this man is in his spirit. And then on the other side, the salvation of God begins with two slave women living with integrity in the face of oppression. Now, I alluded to the idea earlier, if there is going to exist a people who pursue God, then that would have to begin with a person or individuals that pursue God. And that's exactly what we have in Exodus chapter 1. We have, we have two women who initiate this God saving his people in this story. So the book of Exodus is the story of God saving his people. And lots of times we mistakenly think that starts with Moses. Guess what? If these two women don't do what God told them to do, there is no Moses. Okay, we think of Moses being trained in like the Prince of Egypt movie and like, yeah, he's like, he's got all that. Like, he doesn't have any of this. If these two women don't do the thing that God put in front of them to do. They didn't have power or authority or success or position. They just helped other women have babies. That was it. And their obedience and integrity before the Lord is the thing that starts the story of God saving his people. Lots of times you think that you need to get bigger and more. Like we talked about this when we talked about our mission statement earlier, right? The concentric circles of making a difference. Make a difference in your house. Make a difference with your kids. Make a difference with your marriage. Just do the thing that God has put in front of you to do. You don't got to get on TV to change the world. You don't got to run an organization. You don't got to, like, do the thing that God put right. Like, you're not where you are on accident. Do that thing and watch God work. And we're going to continue to read through the book of Exodus. We'll do chapter 2 next week and see how this story continues because these two women were faithful to do what God had called them to do. Let's go ahead and pray. Worship team, you can come on up. Father, I'm grateful for uh, the encouragement that your word gives us. Lord, that we don't have to be amazing. We don't have to be incredibly talented or privileged or in an unbelievable position. But we do have to do the thing you've called us to do. We, we do have to be obedient in the small areas you've called us to be obedient. We can't separate ourselves from the people of God. We do the thing that you've called us to do for the people of God and watch you work. And that's been the way you've worked for thousands of years, Lord. It's why this church exists, because generation after generation has just been obedient. I thank you for your word, the things that it teaches us, Lord, the ways it encourages us. I pray you would give your people wisdom right now, Lord. Wisdom on what it means to do your will, what it means to be your people, how we can be an individual that's called to do the things you've called us to do, be where you've called us to be. Lord, we want to be that kind of people. I'm going to give you about 30 seconds right now just to pray on your own. Uh, we do this quite a bit at our church because uh, this is not just a time where you sit and listen, but you should be communicating with God.
Just think about the things that the word of God spoke to you this morning. Pray to God on your own.